So the uh, quizzers have been memorizing their way through 1 Corinthians and also into 2 Corinthians, and we've been uh, doing, in our teaching on Sunday mornings, going through the book of 1 Corinthians as well. Now I'm looking at the clock, and I'm realizing that there's a bit of a hurry up on me today, so I'm going to jump right into the passage that I've chosen, which is actually not from 1 Corinthians, if you can believe it. I'm actually going to read from Romans chapter 14 and come back at the end to the very verses that they just quoted. Okay, so Romans chapter 14, it, it fleshes out, I think, some of the ideas that were in uh, 1 Corinthians. And if you heard a few weeks ago, Pastor Kurt, he uh, spoke out of, a little bit out of chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, the whole meat offered to idols issue. Again, every time we come to 1 Corinthians, we're saying, what's the bad news about this church? This church was like really divided and lots of bad things were happening there that shouldn't have been happening. And then how do we address those things by looking through the lens of the good news of the gospel, the truth about Jesus? How does that help us fix what is wrong? So, but I want to read out of Romans 14 and let me just jump right in uh, for time's sake. It says, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers each day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Let me just stop there for a second. So what was wrong was the bad news is there was disputes happening in the church over whether or not they could eat uh, meat offered to idols, and in the Roman context, again, that was 1 Corinthians, but in the, in the Roman church, again, it was meat, wine, uh, should we just, and different things like that. They were quarreling over disputable matters. In other words, you might almost say gray areas, or things that were sort of up for grabs, uh, things that maybe there wasn't a straight, direct teaching about that they could look to, in, like in the Bible, and uh, so it was causing division. And they had actually, in the Corinthian context, had actually written to Paul and said, what about meat off with idols? There's lots of arguing happening in the church, and there's lots of division happening in the church over this small area. And so what, what should I do? It reminds me a little bit about my very first year as a, as a youth pastor in Nippon. So this is, we're going way back to 1994, I guess it would be, or maybe 95. And... Um, I had met a Seventh-day Adventist guy, a really nice guy named Ed, and Ed was much older than me, and uh, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. That meant he went to his church on Saturday, and uh, on Sundays he came to our church, uh, and so it was like he was double-dipping. Anyhow, uh, but he's a really nice guy, and I would get together for coffee with him, but as we got, got together for coffee, we eventually got, ta- started talking about, well, why do you meet on Sunday? Why do you meet on Saturday? And we started to... Um, uh, you know, talk about our different viewpoints. And I'd go away from my meetings with Ed and go, hmm, next time I meet with Ed, i got to have a little more ammo so I can win the argument. And so I would do all my research. I'd be sitting in my office studying, and my senior pastor would pop in. What are you doing? Well, I'm meeting with Ed today, and i got to be ready. And so I'd go meet with Ed, and I'd try to convince him about my side. He'd try to convince me about his side. And Ed, obviously, was doing his homework, too. And we go back and forth, and... Uh, 
One day, after this had gone on for weeks, maybe into months, uh, my senior pastor uh, walked into my office and basically quoted this verse, verse to me. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And then he said, your endless arguing with Ed is not productive. We have to do the work of the Lord and you're wasting time. Now, I was a rookie first year of being a pastor and I winced when I heard that. But I realized he was right. What did I want? If I could have anything in my life of following God, what would I want? Would I want Ed to finally settle on, you got to go to church on Sunday, not Saturday? Would that be the one great thing if I stood before Jesus someday and said, you know, my great achievement on earth is I finally got Ed to agree with me? And I think Jesus at that point would say, Ed was already following me. <laughs> he was worshiping on me on Saturday and you were worshiping me on Sunday and... Seriously? That's all you got done? It was a disputable matter, I believe, a disputable matter. Let's go on. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Isn't that crazy? Two sides of a division. You should eat meat. You should abstain from eating meat. And they're both doing what they do out of gratitude towards God. For none of us live for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Both um, in this context, they're talking about the weak and the strong, which is, I find it sometimes not helpful to use those terms. But basically, it's somebody abstains from a certain action, that's sort of a gray area, and other person um, enters into that. And the one who abstains is actually described in this as the weaker brother. That's, that's the terminology. You think it's the other way around, but it's actually that way. The weaker brother is the one who abstains. So they say, no, I'm not going to do that. In this case, it was meat, or maybe it was wine or whatever. They said, I'm not, I'm not going to eat that or drink that to the glory of God. I want to glorify God. I want my life to honor God. So I'm going to not do these things in order to honor God. And on this side, you had people saying, it's not a sin to eat that. It's not a, a sin to drink that. And so I'm going to eat that, and I'm going to drink that, and I'm going to do it to the glory of God. I'm going to do it full of gratefulness, and I think it's the best way to honor God. And so they totally disagree on what the right course of action is. And Paul jumps into it and says, whether you're on this side... Or this side, realize that the person on the other side is doing it to the glory of God. You're both doing it to the glory of God. But somehow this huge division has come in and it's become a mess. Now, just want to say this. Not everything is a disputable matter. Right? There's things that you have really good teaching on in the Bible where we can look at and go, no, that doesn't seem like it's up for grabs. Like if you took the last five of the Ten Commandments, you couldn't say, you know what? I don't covet, but you covet. Just do it to the glory of God. <laughs> or I don't steal, but you steal. Well, 
all that matters is you do to the glory of God. Or lie to the glory of God. Or commit adultery to the glory of God. It doesn't make sense. Murder someone to give God glory. Right? There are certain things you just can't say that's a disputable matter. It's not a disputable matter. It's undis- indisputable. But this was something else. This was like these holy days. How do we recognize them? Or, uh, or these special days. Or, or, the, or, or the practice of eating meat potentially offered to idols, and whether or not you should do that, or drinking wine. These are different things where they were sort of in these gray areas, and you had people very staunchly in one camp and staunchly in another camp. And it was creating division in the church. So not everything's disputable, or it could go one way or the other. And we don't always know that, do we? Because when you're here, abstaining, not doing something, you believe that that's the right thing. And when you're over here and you're doing something, you believe that that's the right thing. So what do we do? A bit, I think the big overarching question that sort of hangs over all this is that there's something that, there's a value that's higher than what we do with the disputable matters. It's how we love each other and how we walk in unity. And this doesn't, again, this isn't unity at every cost. It's if you see someone lying or stealing or committing adultery, you don't say, hey, that's just your, you know, that's your, that's good for you but not good for me. No, that's not true. It actually is. There are moral absolutes. There are things that God makes absolutely clear to us that we can't ignore and, uh, and, Paul wasn't one of these guys to just come in here and sort of take things that were black and white and turn them gray. But he says in these areas, um, things were, are not going well. You're taking something that is uh, disputable and you're, you're turning it into something worse. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? Right? The one who abstains, the one who says, I'm not going to do this thing because I think it's right. They might look over and say, you're doing that. And they'll be judging them. The other person on the other side is saying, I'm doing this because I've come to the point of realizing I have the freedom in Christ to do this. And boy, am I ever smarter than you. Contempt. He says, why do you treat them with, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge, acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Don't put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of the brother or sister. Now, most of this is written to the person who's on this side who says, I'm free in Christ to do these things, and I don't see why that person has such a hang-up about whatever it is they have a hang-up about. Most of it's written to the person on this side. Don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in their way. And what's the nature of the stumbling block? This is the... Okay, this is, I think, is the big thing he's concerned about. He's saying, here's someone who's saying, well, I'm strong in my faith, or I'm, I'm strong, so I, you know, these things are not an issue. I can, I, can be a, I can do these things to the glory of God. They can't. Somehow they're hung up on it. What Paul doesn't want to happen is for this person to come alongside this person and say, hey, you know what? You should 
participate in this. And for this person who's weak in their faith to say, or weak in this area to say, oh, really? But I feel I'd be violating my conscience, but okay. Paul says at the end of the chapter, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So when a person who does something that Paul even would say, it's okay. Paul is one of the ones who's on this side. Paul's like, it's okay to eat the meat offered to idols. It's okay. But it is so not okay for you to take someone who, has a, who, who conscientiously has abstained from that because they want to honor God with their lives, to take them, put your arm around them, and convince them against their own conscience to do what they feel is sinful. To tempt them into what they feel is disobeying God. So that is not okay. That is so not okay. So let me give you a scenario. I'm trying to stay away from scenarios because of what I will read later in the chapter. Because then I'll get in trouble. But here's a scenario. Okay, let's say someone just becomes a brand new Christian. They just started following Jesus. And this is a scenario I know has happened in different people's lives. And they say, man, I just want to worship Jesus. I've just discovered I've been to church. I've worshiped Jesus. I've experienced what it's like. It's so filling and wonderful. And I've decided I am not going to have anything to do with any music in my life anymore that isn't worship music. And so they take their whole, I guess this would be an old illustration, CD collection, you know, they take them and they, they say, I'm going to just burn them all in a big fire to the glory of God. Because from now on, I just want to worship Jesus and I only want worship music in my house and that's just what I'm going to do. Now, what if, what if the person over here goes, wait a second, you don't have to get rid of all your secular music. You don't have to do that. You, you can listen. To, oh, keep that Coldplay CD. Oh, and look at this. It's classical music. Nothing wrong with it. And what about this? And you can, and Paul's saying, don't do this. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do the thing where they go, oh, well, I really was going to do something to show how much God means to me but, okay, I'll keep that music because I really do want to keep that because I really like to groove to that. And, I, and then you leave the scenario and they're like, I think I'm disobeying God. I think I'm disobeying God. It's complex, isn't it? Really complex. Let's read some more. Scripture helps us sort it out. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother and sister. Don't tempt them to disobey what their conscience is telling them. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother is, or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not buy your eating or drinking or observance of special days. Those are all part of it. Destroy someone for whom Christ died. There's hu two huge warnings in here, and I'll get, the second one will come, but this is the first one. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. How, are you how could you possibly destroy them? By encouraging them or, or maybe even tempting them to violate what their conscience is saying. 
to participate in something. And maybe somewhere down the road, they'll come to say, oh yeah, that was silly. Remember when I burned all those CDs? Oh man, I can't believe that. I could have kept all those. You know, that was, now I come to a different understanding of that and that's not a big deal anymore. And, and oh, that was sort of funny. You know, I was sort of a new Christian just sort of starting out. But you know what? I was sincere. I was absolutely sincere. I wanted nothing but Jesus for my life. And you know what? I believe Jesus loved that moment even though I see it a little differently now. So many of us, we want to rush people into that. Oh, in the future, you'll understand this. No, 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 no. You, gotta leave, you allow people where they're at to respond with a clean conscience towards God. Do not destroy someone for whom Christ died. So it requires a real sensitivity to the other person, a real care for the other person. Not just that they would come to see what you see. There's a higher value than your opinion winning the day over another person. And that is that they have a clean conscience before God as they serve him. And that you don't tempt them away from that. So do not let what you know is good to be spoken of for evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort. This is a crucial verse. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Right? Remember, what was the problem? Judging and contempt. I judge you for what you do. I have contempt because you don't do. It says, instead of that, let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification is like doing stuff for their best so they'll be encouraged uh, so that they'll walk even more strongly in their walk with God. Are you making every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification? in your relationship with other believers. Here's the second great warning. So first, we do not destroy someone for whom Christ died, but the second one is do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, oh, this is... I can hardly read this one. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That's what should be on the top of everybody's Facebook page. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Can you imagine if we actually followed that rule? Think about applying that one line. Let me ask you, how much of Billy Graham's Graham's opinions did he keep to himself? I mean, in his 20s, he came into the spotlight, 99. So if you you live 70 plus years in a national and international spotlight as a Christian, how much would people know of your opinions? How tempted would you be if you had that kind of platform like Billy Graham did to sort of get out your opinions about this, that, and the other thing? about certain social causes that are really important, about um, who you're, you know, which sports team everybody should be cheering for. <laughs> I mean, whatever it is, 
Billy Graham actually had to do what all leaders have to do. Do you know as you go up in leadership, you lose your rights? Most people think it's the opposite. They think if I was a leader like Billy Graham, I'd have all these rights. No, no, no. You have less and less rights the higher you go in the leadership pyramid. You gain responsibilities. You may gain authority, but you lose rights. You give them up every level you go. Oh, let me just illustrate. When I was uh, newly married in Ipuan, um, it was election time and everyone was putting out lawn signs. Well, actually only one party had gotten theirs out. The other ones were lagging behind. It was just all the NDP signs were up in town. And uh, so I went and I, I got myself a, a, some bristle board at, at the hardware store and I made myself my own lawn sign. And it was just like all the other lawn signs, big orange ones like the NDP ones, but I changed it. I was newly married and I was, I was going to have some fun. And so what I decided to do was I put my wife's name on the lawn sign, and then instead of New Democratic Party, I wrote Noble, Delightful, Precious, and you know, basically referencing Proverbs 31, and I nailed it into my lawn. And the newspaper came by and said, we want to interview you. And I just said, well, I really like my wife. Anyhow, so they put me on the front page of the newspaper, standing beside my political lawn sign. <laughs> and it looked just like everyone else's. If you drove by fast, you wouldn't notice because it was the same color as everybody else's. But then here, some people read it and reported me. Anyhow, so they're interviewing me, and then they wrote this little article about, you know, me and my love of my wife. And basically, you know, the article said something like, newlywed husband doing juvenile things to impress his wife, you know, something like that. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> right beside the article that talks about the epidemic of prolonged adolescence, you know. <laughs> I didn't read that because it was too many abstract concepts for me. But um, anyhow, <laughs> this is not news. Husbands do this kind of stuff all the time. Maybe they don't put it on a lawn sign. Anyhow, the second time I put a, a lawn sign, was when I moved to Moose Jaw, I put up a lawn sign. And this time I actually put up, a, someone came to my door, would you put up a lawn sign for our party? I listened to their platform, looked at the other platform. I thought, yeah, I think you're the one I'm going to vote for this time. Put out, this, put out the lawn sign. The neighbor beside me had the same one. And he was much older than me, and he was really friendly to me after that. And it was really nice. Every time I see him, hey, how's it going? Hey, yeah, you know, good to see you, Steve. I'm like, yeah, this is really working for me. And then... Somebody in the youth group thought it'd be really funny to switch my lawn signs. So they stole my lawn sign and put the other party on. And then I looked out one morning and I thought, what happened? So anyhow, I took all the kids in the youth group, all the older senior highs, uh, into a small room with a hot light and interrogated them all until I finally found out it was my assistant, Jen, who had actually uh, put it all together. So I got my lawn sign back and I switched them back and I'm out there pounding it back in and the neighbors walked by. Now I was one, now I was the other, now I'm back again, right? So I'm pounding it into my lawn, and so I explained to them the whole story. Youth group, shenanigans, just for fun, you know, I'm, I was surprised as you were, you know, stuff like that. And the, the husband, he says, no big deal, you know. He says, I, I thought it'd be something like that. And his wife said, that's not what you said at home. <laughs> I've never put up a lawn sign since. 
And when I became lead pastor of this church, I realized I'm glad that, that I don't put up lawn signs anymore. Because I realized I have to make a choice. As your life goes on and you go higher in leadership, you give up your rights. But you have to choose what is going to be the end of your life. Billy Graham made an absolutely crystal clear choice, didn't he? It's going to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, every day, every day, every day. It's going to be that one priority. Even when presidents come along and say, come, be our, speak at our prayer breakfast and do these things. Oh, then he could have said, well, it's about this social cause or it's about my pet project or support my charity or, or, or come along, you know, or cheer for the sports team I cheer for. Billy Graham limited himself. He gave up his rights to speak about all those things because what mattered to him most was the gospel of Jesus Christ going out. So he lived an entire, this is why we're so amazed at Billy Graham, because most leaders who rise to that prominence get off message near the end. That's why Billy Graham's story is so amazing to us. You're 99 and you were still on message. Even your funeral was on message. So what do we really want? It brings us back to the passage of Scripture that, we, that the, the quizzers recited for us. Let me read it to you again. Though I'm free, and I belong to no one. This is the wonderful thing about being a follower of Christ. You're free. There's lots of things you can do. But I've made myself a slave to everyone. Billy Graham could have groused and said, man, having everybody watch everything you do in life is sort of a drag. I just want to go to Vegas once and spend some time on the Strip. I don't know. I'm sure he never said that. It just sounds so un-Billy Graham-like. But there were just things in his life that he could never do that many, many Christians could do. But he'd chosen to lead. And he'd chosen a cause and Paul's cause is the same. He says, though I'm free and I belong to no one, only to Christ, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become one, those under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like those not having the law. Though I'm free from God's law and I'm but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. What would you like to stand before God and say, look, I accomplished this. I, I have made this decision and I'm trying to reinforce it in my life again and again. That my life mission is not to win people over to my political persuasion. So I don't have a lawn sign. 
And I don't tell you who to vote for. And I don't tell you who I'm voting for. I keep it between me and God. Why, you can't have political conversations? Of course you can, of course you can. But is there something you want more? Is there something you want more? Do you want people to think the same as you in, in certain opinions? Or do you want them to know Christ? Paul said, when I'm hanging out with the Jews, I just fit in with the Jews as best as I can because my one and only mission there is to win some of them to Christ. When I'm hanging out with people who aren't Jews, I just fit in with them. I'm not there to try to convince them they should be more Jewish. I'm there to win them to Christ. If you can only have one thing, if you could only have people agree with you on one thing, what would, you, what would be that one thing? I watched the Olympics. How many watched the Winter Olympics? Just, yeah. I, I'm, I watched the Winter Olympics and had a whole new appreciation with them because I watched it with my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law is a former Olympian. She was a cross-country skier for Canada. Her name's Dasha, Daria is on her website. Daria Galazova, but now Atkins. Anyhow, she... Uh, in Vancouver and Sochi, she represented Canada as a cross-country skier. She's very good. At, you know, in, for Cana- a Canadian woman, for Canadian women's team is not very good on the national scale. She was quite good. And, uh, and so we're sitting there, and she said, I could have competed in this Olympics. Because she competed in the last two, and she's really good. And I said, yeah, you could have competed in this Olympics. And she's telling me who all the, you know, it's fun because she's telling me all the inside stories of everybody's competing and it's fascinating. And then she says, I could have competed in this Olympics. But instead, I chose to go back to school and get my MB- finish my MBA, my degree. I chose to marry your brother. I chose to buy a house and have a baby. And she said, if I had competed in this Olympics, I would not have any of that because it would have took 100% of everything to compete for that Olympics. So Dasha did the analysis. What do I want more? What do I want more? And at the end of the day, she's saying, you know what? Finishing my degree, marrying Peter, although that's no great prize. Like any Atkins, anyone who marries an Atkins boy, you don't get a gold medal for marrying into the Atkins family. In fact, you took one for the team. Maybe you should get a medal for that. But I mean, other than that. <laughs> but she seems to like him. So it's good. We're thrilled. I think she must have had a knock on her head when she was cross-country skiing or something. But anyhow... Finished her degree, she married my brother, and now they have a beautiful little baby girl, and she says that was worth it to not be on TV and competing at this level. I chose better. Billy Graham decided that the gospel is going to be his life's work. And I think the call is for every Christian to decide. Because it's easy for us to destroy our brother or sister, carelessly, to get into fights and arguments over disputable matters that don't really matter. And in the process, lose the work of God, which really matters. 
And so I'm trying to, coming from a very political family who every meal talks politics, I'm trying to wean myself off of a lesser value. Because there's a greater thing to be won. What if I win someone over to my political persuasion but lose them for eternity? There's a greater thing to be won, and we have to keep that in focus. And so that's why Paul comes to this radical Olympic-style ending. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone who's running aimlessly. I do not fight like a a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, "I, I discipline myself. I limit myself. I give up my rights. I do all these things for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to close with a really weird illustration, but a couple weeks ago, I brought up the Canada Summer Jobs Grant. And I wish I hadn't. <laughs> the day after I preached, I, no, just bear with me. The next day, after I, I talked about, you know, you had to either tick the box to attest to certain things or not to attest. If you don't know, look it up online. You can find out. I'm not going to explain it all today. The next day, I walk into the office, and, and I get sort of new information that sort of informs the things that I was uninformed about. So I'm looking at it, and I'm realizing, oh, through a long process, that something could happen. Actually, something would happen. That some Christians would look at it and say, I can never tick that box and make that attestation. And so I won't. And then other Christians could look at that same thing and say, no, I think I can tick that box and make that attestation. And that this one would be able to say, I can't do that because my conscience won't allow me. And this one will say, I can do that because my conscience will allow me. And this person saying, I can't do that. And I think this is the best way to honor and glorify God. And this person will say, I can do that. And I think this is the best way to honor and glorify God. And then it hit me. It just hit me. See, there's three levels of, of, in this whole experience I had with the Canon Sober Jobs Grant, the first one was how the enemy wants to twist this to wreck the church. First one was fear. We're losing our religious freedoms. Fear, fear, fear. What will it be like next year, the year after, 10 years from now? And I thought, that's the first thing to confront. Because the future is not about what the government does, the future for the Christian is always about. Who is walking beside us? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's got next year. He's got the year after. He's got 10 years from now. He'll always be our shepherd. He'll always guide us. He will never leave us, never forsake us, no matter what comes. And he teaches every generation how to live for God in whatever situation they are. So I thought the first thing to confront is fear. Because the enemy's always trying to get in on the church and wreck things. And when you've got a harmonious, working together church like we do at Hillcrest, you want to preserve it, no matter what. You want to preserve it. So, fear. we got to address fear. Then the second thing that really came to me was, it wasn't just fear that was going to be a, a thing. That we, had to, we had to talk about fear about the future. 
The next danger was offense, and I talked about that in that service a few weeks ago. I talked about what if Christians feel like we're being unjustly treated and persecuted and we're victims and then we're angry and then we're offended and we lose our joy and our gratitude and our focus becomes on what is someone else is doing to us, not what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus has made us undeservedly rich because of his gospel. He's made us his sons and daughters. We have the hope of eternal life. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that can ever be put on the other side of that scale that can outweigh it. Forever, we are the biggest beneficiaries on the planet. We have received much, so we love much. Oh, I'd hate for the church's love for Christ to diminish because we are thinking about how we've been unjustly treated all the time. The world is full of people who are going down the road of, I'm the biggest victim. No, I'm the biggest victim. Oh, we do not want to get in that game. We want to say we are the biggest beneficiaries. We are the most blessed. And that's why if you curse us, we can bless you back. So that was the second danger. And then the third danger. Oh, the third danger. I didn't catch on to it for weeks. But it was that moment where I was looking at this thing and going, man, you could almost sign that. Maybe you can't sign that. I mean, I think today I could. No, I can't. Back and forth, and then I realized division, the third threat. Division. And 1 Corinthians speaks right to it. So I thought, thank you, Lord, that we're going through 1 Corinthians. Division is the third threat. And that is where you signed that thing? You didn't? I'm judging you. I think you're a fool. Oh. It's tricky stuff. But we are not unaware of the devil's devices. We're not unaware of strategies. And we can combat them. So here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to meet Christians. Okay, this is just an illustration. Let me say about the illustration. You hear about organizations that sign and don't sign. Don't think these ones are dumb. Don't think these ones are ungodly. If they're believers in Christ, they've probably prayed about it, they've thought about it, and they're probably both worshiping God through their checking and not checking the box. Can you get your head around that? Can you believe that? I believe that. I believe that. They're actually worshiping God through their checking or not checking the box. Can you believe your pastor said that after a few weeks, what he said? Can you believe that? I totally believe that. And I think the greatest danger is not whether or not we check a box. The greatest danger is whether we divide over disputable matters. When something much greater is at stake, whether or not people come to know the Jesus that we love and serve. That is the most important thing. Do not destroy your brother. Do not destroy the work of God over a disputable matter. So let's not be fools. Let's not be fooled. Let's not fall into a trap. Let's not go down the road of division. I have lots of Christian friends who think very differently on a lot of the opinions that I have. And my opinions are all going, in a greater and greater measure, underground. Which is great. It'll probably fix my preaching, actually. Because what you need to hear is the Word of God. You need to hear what God thinks. Right? That's what we need to hear. We need to hear what the Word of God thinks. Or what God himself thinks through his Word. And we need to uphold his work. Okay? So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray, and I invite you to pray with me. Okay? 
1 Corinthians has been landmine after landmine after landmine. Boy, do we need to pray every time we preach, okay? Let's not step on this one either, okay? Let's not step on this one either. Lord Jesus, thank you that you made us one. Thank you for the wonderful time of communion this morning to recognize the, your body given for us and the body of Christ that we're a part of. And uh, I thank you for each one. I thank you for uh, each one. I just see them streaming up, and I just thank you for each one and the work that you're doing in their lives. And Lord, I believe your Holy Spirit is active in each one. You're bringing conviction of sin. I don't have to be the Holy Spirit. You are. You bring conviction of sin. And when your word and the Holy Spirit come together in that amazing combination, lives change. Lives change. So God, we just, we honor you. We honor you so much for the way that you are working in our midst. And so Lord, give us wisdom to walk together. There's never been a season that I'm aware of in my lifetime where we've needed each other so much. So God, would you help us to dodge? First, fear. Help us to dodge that. That's not where you want us to live. You are going to give us everything we need for life and godliness in this season. Everything. Everything. And you're an incredible leader. You will lead us. I mean, you want to lead us more than we want to be led. So let's just admit the impasses on our side. You will lead us. We don't have to be afraid. You're a great provider. Everything we need for the future. 2019, 2020, 2021, 2030, 2040. You've got it. And you'll provide it. And so, Lord, we're just trusting you. And, Lord, keep us from offense. You meant for us to live in joy and gratitude, not anger and offendedness. So, Lord, if there's anything we need to forgive, if we notice that we're getting angry inside, Lord, help us bless those who curse us. Help us pray for those who despitefully use us. We want to just follow your teaching. We want to follow your leading. And you forgave those who were uh, mistreating you on the cross. And so that same forgiveness is our example for our lives today. And then, Lord, keep us from division. Keep us from division. Let's Help us to come around the things that are not disputable. Help us to come around the things that are real and true, that there is a Savior who's come to save us all from our sins, who's come to set us free from bondage to darkness and to release us into the kingdom of light. And so, Lord, keep us in a place of love towards our brothers. I thank you for each one that you've given me in the family of Christ. I thank you that these are co-laborers in the gospel. So Lord Jesus, I pray for a fine-tuning in our lives. Lord, I believe even this morning some people, as we've talked about how leaders give up their rights to go up, there's some people saying, Lord, make me a leader. Lord, make me a leader. Help me be willing to lay things down for a greater cause. Yeah, we love you, we honor you today, and we just, uh, we ask that you would lead us into the future, in your name, amen.